You're listening to Wrestling Changed My Life, presented by Spartan Combat. Let's go. A leader requires the ability to influence, um, and, but also put the needs of the organization first. We can endure anything and adapt and pivot and change. Wrestling gave us that ability. I would say nothing in life has impacted me more than the things wrestling has taught me in terms of self-reflection, resilience. Toughness. Some guys have it, some guys don't. Adversity, 100%. How to pick myself up and be a man after I failed. And everything that has shaped my life and where I'm at today would not be there without the values and basically the, the lessons I've learned through the sport of wrestling. For me, wrestling saved my life because it, it allowed me to focus and channel my energy. We're fortunate if you wrestled because if you wrestled, natural talent helps, but it's, it's 5% of the ingredient. It pales in comparison to heart and technique and effort. It humbled me, taught me humility. Nothing can hit, humble you more than wrestling. I think it's the learning to adapt, right? You learn, you learn how to adapt, you learn how to solve problems. You know, if I look back at my time, I spent wrestling. If it gave me one thing more than anything else, it's mental toughness. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Wrestling Changed My Life podcast. This is your host, Ryan Warner. We have a guest for you today, folks. It's Chance Leonard. Awesome interview, but I got to spend a few minutes on the Olympics. Last night was an incredible round. We had David Taylor, the great magic man, on the mat. Thomas Gilman and Helen Maroulis. And I will say, this is one of the sessions where I was screaming at the TV. I was on the edge of my seat. So here's what happened. David Taylor is assaulting people. He has three tech falls in a row and is looking very good. He's going to wrestle Yazdani Chirati, 2016 Olympic gold medalist, two-time world champ in the finals Thursday morning, probably around 8 a.m. That's going to be a match of legacy. Taylor and Yazdani have wrestled many times. David Taylor won the last two, so it's going to be a battle. Helen Maroulis, man, she's battled some adversity since 2016, but she came out guns blazing last night, had a very tough Chinese opponent in the first round. She was losing during the match, comes back, really opens the score. She won her second match as well. And so going into this morning's semifinal round, we were all feeling good. She lost a very tight match, 2-1, to one to a Japanese wrestler who won the 2016 Olympics. So a tough loss for Helen, but she's in the wrestlebacks, should be going for bronze. I believe her next matches are tonight at 9 p.m. Central. Thomas Gilman, folks, came out of the gate swinging against Ogoya from Russia, who is the two-time defending world champ. And man, Gilman was winning most of the match up until the last five seconds. And then Ogoyev hit this little trip. I don't even know what it was. John Smith didn't know what it was. And Gilman lost a, I guess, a one-point match, if you will. But the good news is, Ogoyev made the finals as we thought he would. Gilman's pulled back in the wrestlebacks and has a chance for bronze. So it was an awesome night of wrestling. Action resumes tonight at 9 p.m. Central. Kyle Dake and Gable Steveson are going to have their first matches. Cannot wait. All right, folks, let's shift to the interview now. We have Chance Leonard. Chance is the executive producer for The Price of Legacy, a brand-new wrestling documentary that chronicles 
the Perry High School Wrestling Program out in Perry, Oklahoma. So I didn't know a lot about these guys. Perry, Oklahoma has won the state title 43 times. <laughs> so they've got something going on out there. And Chance went to Perry. He's a very successful businessman. And now he wanted to highlight this incredible tradition. So please go watch the documentary, The Price of Legacy. It's on YouTube Movies, iTunes, and the Google Play Store. Fan of the Week goes to a couple recent iTunes Apple Podcast reviews. So if you're listening to this on your iPhone and using the Apple Podcast app, which most of you are, you can leave a review for the show. So I want to give a shout out to three folks, D. Zelensky 20 Kira Chris, and Roughneck165, my man Lucas M. Thank you so much for your kind words. We greatly appreciate it. And without further ado, folks, let's get to the episode with one chance, Leonard. Chance Leonard, welcome to the podcast, sir. Thank you so much, Ryan, for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity to connect with you. Yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun. So you are the man behind the documentary, The Price of Legacy. Tell me how this all got started. Number one, great question. I think that if I had to define it in one word, it would be gratitude. And having you know, the opportunity to have participated in the sport of wrestling at a high school that is um, committed to the program, committed to the development of kids, and um, really uh, unleashing the power of the sport uh, through mentorship and through coaching and through, you know, just the participation in the sport and the requirements of it. it was something that I reflected on after a number of years um, and had the opportunity to do something that I felt like I could give back uh, to the sport. And that's how, in a sense, this was born. Um, there are some more details, I guess I would say, that are specific. And that was, I, I remember standing at Dan Hodge's uh, ceremony where we were going to dedicate a statue to him and we were celebrating his lifetime of achievements. And I got to see, you know, several different dignitaries in this group of, of people that were, were celebrating him. And I just thought to myself, despite the fact that we're going to create um, a wrestling monument park on the, in the town of Perry, Oklahoma, I, I just thought, you know, there's something more that can be done. And that's how the vision came about. And we thought, let's, let's do something that gives maximum visibility to what the sport entails and why it's so important. And, you know, get more people out there to understand what it's all about. So what's as much about highlighting wrestling as it is telling the Perry story to you? Absolutely. I personally believe that the Perry story affords the opportunity to tell a bigger story about wrestling, about, as I say, the commitment to it from a group of people that pass it down from generation to generation. And then what the impact of the sport is on kids as they develop, especially at a point in time when they're learning, when hardship sometimes is, is, is not as appreciated as it will be later in life. And so that's how this all came about. I never yeah. wanted it to be just, you know, Ryan, about the sport of wrestling and a pat on the back for Perry, Oklahoma, which is certainly deserved. But I think we did that well with the creation of the Perry Wrestling Monument Park. But to, to be able to do something that would give back 
um, and, and tell, like I say, a much bigger story is always at the top of the priority list. And I think that's why we're seeing the success of the film come about because it reaches a larger audience. Yeah, it's got that, it just pulls at you uh, nostalgically and reminds you of all the all the memories that you know you, me and my family have had through the sport. So that it's fun to watch it that way. At the 30,000 foot level, for, for folks who aren't interested, how would you describe the documentary like when you're introducing it to, to Film Fest and people who know nothing about wrestling? Well, I would start with number one, people, right? And, and people that, that um, you know, become committed to doing something and doing it with a level of excellence that can be reproduced. I think that it becomes a generational passing of values that no matter where you sit on a political spectrum, these should be something that's you know indigenous to both sides of the fence. And so I think after that, it's a sports story. It, you know, it, it, it shows the hardship and it shows the dedication. It shows what it takes from a mentality side of things, utilizing the sport and the beauty of what it is. We, we know that it's one-on-one -on -one competition, but it also that one-on-one -on -one competition and that requires and demands excellence also produces a team output. And I think that in itself, um, by, able, by, by us being able to tell a story that pulls at heartstrings because you see what it actually takes um, is really something that can unify and can bring about awareness to doing something a little bit differently than mainstream sports. Yeah, and the, the streak you talk about in the film is pretty incredible. And for someone who's been around wrestling all my life, I did not know about Perry, Oklahoma until I had heard about this documentary. And it was last winter, I think, was the first time I heard about it. But talk a little yeah. bit about the wrestling tradition in Perry, Oklahoma. Well, it is a very unique tradition, to say the least. This year in 2021, um, moving into 2022, will be the 100-year celebration of the program, which was established in 1922. During that period of time, there's only been a total of 12 head coaches um, in the Perry Wrestling program. Ten of them have grown up in the program, gone on to wrestle in college, and come back to give to the program in um, a different way, i.e. coaching and mentoring. And so, you know, we, we thought that this would be really unique to be able to tell 100-year, century-old legacy uh, of winning tradition with many, many different um, achievements along the way. So a national record, 43 team state championships um, since inception. Since 1961, the program has never gone more than two years without winning a state title. And that streak has been on the line a total of six times since 1961. And so, you know, that's actually really unique. We just last year hit 1,018 dual wins to become the fourth program in the country to have 1,000 dual wins during its tenure. Wow. And so since I think 1954, if I remember correctly, the, the, the program has averaged 8.8 um, wrestlers to go and qualify for the state tournament which is a significant streak in itself, you know, and they've had 20 dual state championships, 19 of them were in a row. Um, and that was recently eclipsed by Tuttle High School. And so, you know, there's been a lot of records that have stood the test of time. 
Um, but I would tell you that the film really more is, is about not the gold medals, but how they are won. And I would tell you, you know, these, these kids, you know, we're not just wrestling an opponent on the mat. We're not just wrestling the, the inner, you know, voices in our head in order to win, but the responsibility of, of carrying on a legacy is another element that I think really is unique. Um, and it really tells a great story about what wrestling can produce as a whole. Yeah, and it, you had just said something that I want to come back to you later because I know you've gone on to have your unsuccessful life in business, and and I want to talk about uh, some of the the values and and inner voices as you said there, and yeah. as it relates to having success in business um, and in producing this film because you know my passion is making documentaries, so this conversation is a little bit selfish yeah. for me, um, just in terms of how you pulled this off, and so. It was definitely that I was, I would say that it was, you know, a triple overtime match, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you know, really unique in a sense when you tell people, Hey, I I'm going to do something that's really unique. And I'm going to, you know, create a film about, you know, this program and about these people in this community. And obviously they would be correct in saying, are, are, are you sure you want to do this? Because first and foremost, how much experience do you have? Zero. You know, who do you know? Not too many people in this industry, you know. And then secondly, well, how much, what's the budget going to be? And how are you going to film? And what are the angles going to be like? And how do you get people involved? I mean, how do you start something like this? And what's really unique, Ryan, is that when this all came about, this was in May of 2016. And the season was starting in November of 2016 when this streak was really on the line. And so that required an immense amount of work um, to be done quickly to even just, you know, get people to believe that you can do it. And so I think obviously because of my athletic career, people probably thought, okay, well, you know, if anybody can do it, he's overcome a lot of other challenges and stuff. And, you know, he'll probably get it done, but are you really going to do this with like an iPhone or what are you going to do in order to, to pull something like this off? And it's, it's a major, major accomplishment. I have had great people that I've been associated with and become lifelong friends with through it. So um, I look forward to touching base a little bit more about that. So how did you decide, um, like, how did you decide on the director and, and like who was going to shoot it and all that? Cause it's, you know, it's obviously done super top notch, uh, high end stuff here. So how'd you get in touch with the director? Yeah. So I had a really good friend of mine who's my business partner um, in this endeavor. His name is Bruce Louisi. And he happened to play football at USC and then went on to play in the pros. And so his family um, was um, part of the entertainment movie business in Los Angeles. And so he and I had been speaking, you know, for a number of years through our friendship and and I told him, I said, look, do you know anybody? And he, of course, said, yes, I can connect us with a few people. So originally he got me uh, connected with a gentleman named Tim Vandesteeg, um, who unfortunately passed away mid part of our filming process and editing. That was uh, one of the wow. challenges that we overcome. Um, and then I got connected to um, a group um, and his name was Jim Orr, was the original director of photography. He had worked on... Um, several different projects, and um, we put a team together, 
rented the necessary equipment and we started doing interviews and um, uh, filming uh, with all of our B-roll filming in November of 2016. How many different interviews do you think you did? I think we probably did about 30 to 34 interviews overall. We, we really filmed about 200 hours of footage um, and then refine that to, and edit it to feature film length. And so the, the uh, documentary is actually 82 minutes and change. And did the director edit it as well? So uh, my original director that was working with us on the project, um, we, we parted ways after the first session. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the uh, original uh, producers and, and editors became our director. His name is Sergio Valenzuela. He's in Nashville, Tennessee. Um, he was originally connected to, through Tim and his team, and um, he did a fantastic job, really immersed himself in the content and what the sport was all about, um, and then connecting with the, the right people to interview. You, you, you got to have credibility voices, of course, and that's, you know, the likes of Rich Bender and Leroy Smith and Dan Hodge and Mike Chapman. Um, or just a few of our, our people that we have um, in the film. But then, you know, I think people really want to hear from the kids, the, the people that are participating and feeling what the pressure is like and, you know, trying to win their own individual state championship as long as keep a, a team streak alive. So those, those are all of the, of the, the credibility points um, and, and past coaches that went into um, the film. And when you say the first wave, was there like a second wave where you thought maybe this wasn't going to go through and you had to kind of restart things or what do you mean by that? Yeah, actually we did. So um, in, in kind of changing a little bit of the direction uh, from a director's point of view, um, it did require us, you know, to, in a sense, recalibrate what we needed to accomplish, what was most important to come out. Um, and it became, you know, as a, as a former you know, athlete in the sport of wrestling, you know, you're very disciplined and the structure had to really be there. And so um, that's what we implemented. Um, what I wanted to see from a vision standpoint come about, um, especially with specific topics um, and what needed to, to come from each of the interviews. Mm -hmm. Now it's, uh, it's just, you know, interesting thinking about if you started in 2016 and at that time your guns blazing, you probably would have never thought it'd be 2021. And if you did, you would have said, I'll never do this. You know, it's like just such yeah. a long time and knowing how much goes into it. Um, what were some of the obstacles you had to overcome that, that bubbled up that people may not know about? Yeah. Well, but one of the number one things was, is, you know, the unfortunate passing of Tim Vanesty yeah. in the, the middle of our production. The second part of it was, is really, as you know, getting it across the finish line you can actually get a lot of content filmed, but you know, when you create something and then you write it, you have to pull all of the pieces together so that there's a flow to the film. And I, I would tell you that through the editing process, you know, that required an immense amount of work and, and not so much a delay, uh, but you know, finding the time when people on my team and especially myself having full-time jobs, yeah. you know, we were doing this, on weekends and on holidays and after eight o'clock at night and flying, you know, to, to Nashville to do editing and things that required um, a, a lot of 
uh, of additional time and, and challenge coordinating schedules. And then I think also too, once you get content together, who becomes the distributor? And, and number one, why should they care? And I, I, you know, I've always taken this point is that most people, they're not, they're not required to listen. My job is to, to actually make them care and, and listen to what it is that we're trying to do. Mm-hmm. And when you tell the right story and you tell people what it's really about, and um, that in a sense becomes a long interview process as well, you know, getting all of the necessary insurances, getting the right attorneys involved. And, and there was just a lot of additional expense that was outside the, the original budget that um, I had to account for. What about the music? Did you do a custom score for this? Because I really like the, the music in it. We did. We did. And so we had a gentleman named J.D. Andrew that is fantastic. Um, and he has a library of music that is absolutely amazing. You know, we were, I originally was going to do um, a soundtrack that we would create from scratch um, from um, um, a gentleman that uh, his, his father wrestled was a national champion um, with Dan Gable at Iowa State. And mm. so he happened to be in Nashville. We were originally going to do this, but we, we changed after that when that part of the, of, um, the, the film didn't get, didn't get funded. And so um, thankfully having the connection to a gentleman like J.D. Andrew, I, in fact, it's what's crazy is I was watching the last two Tour de France's and much of the music that I, this is part of the film, I heard excerpts of it in the actual Tour de France. And so it's wide ranging music that, that is fantastic to say the least. That's the best part about it though. Like the music that, um that I use in the Smiths. It ju- I just listened yeah. to the last dance and I just picked my favorite songs from the last dance and had the guy create them as close to that as possible. So like, that's, yeah. what's cool about the music is it does seem like it's super professional and it gives you those, those uh, competition vibes, so to speak. So that's it's cool. You all heard original. It. It's all original from his library that, um, you know, not many people get access to. I love it. It is fantastic. And it's something I wrote down that I really enjoyed about it. Um, so when did you, when was the last scene like a camera shot? Um, were you guys done in 2017 or were you still filming all the way up until recently? We filmed all the way into mid 2018. Got it. And so we captured some additional B roll um, mm-hmm. from tw- the year 2018 to incorporate into the film. I-, I wanted to have a little bit more, you know, some of the shots and, you know, kids age pretty quickly you know, um, from year to year, especially in high school. And so we wanted to see a little bit of that maturity come after, especially in the post wrestling interviews so that, that could, people could see, you know, a little bit of that change during this period of time. And would you go to every interview? I did. Yes, sir. Wow. Absolutely. So yeah. you were, were you interviewing them or were your directors doing the interviews? We both did. We both wow. did. Interesting. Yeah. That's, I mean, the interview itself is such a key piece of it. And if that doesn't go right, you don't have good footage for the film. So, so you were That's actually right. doing each one. Wow. It's so much work. And so you guys were editing for, you know, a good while, which makes sense yeah. given that much. It was content. about a nine to, to 12 months in totality of, of editing. Um, as you know, it's, it's just, 
there's it's like building a house in some ways you know every cook crook and cranny you know every inch you know of of the house there's the same sort of thing every millisecond you know matters and especially as you, as you piece it together um to, to ensure that you know there's a, a significant flow and especially it, from my perspective you know the last 30 minutes of the the documentary are key um to building about what we needed people to feel what the pressure was and that takes you know the footage and it takes the right music in, in order for people to identify with what these kids were feeling at the time and especially not only that but the coaches and the fans you, you needed to see their reactions in the stands to losses and you know to to wins and especially wins that you know needed to come through and bonus points were required in order to to you know secure or not secure those things were on the line throughout the whole entire film that's the cool part about it how did you get trace atkins <laughs> you know that, that, i tell you that's one of the funnest things i think about this film is that i utilized everything that i learned on the wrestling map you know with <laughs> regard to you know extreme commitment and the discipline to keep going when it was extremely hard, but then the, the age old adage of six degrees of Kevin Bacon, right? Who do I know that would know somebody else that would know somebody else that I could start reducing the number of people in between. Mm -hmm. And so guys that were integral to the film, Zach Adams, Mike Stryker, they, they live in Nashville and they were so bought in to you know, what the story entailed that they started helping through that process. And, and we got to, to, to trace and, you know, thankfully, he, I mean, his voice is, is tremendous and his talent is, is, you know, off the charts, but he responded to my email in less than 24 hours saying, I'm in, I want to do this. Wow. And then that did, was staggering. Did you have the script ready then for him to read? Pretty close. Yeah, because he requested it. Um, and so there was a few final, you know, uh, things that I wanted to, to, to tighten up a little bit, um, sent it to him and flew it to Nashville uh, to our, our studio. And um, he did it in about an hour. I mean, his talent. An hour? He, he what? Quick. One hour. Yeah. So did you One write hour. it after you had done most of the editing to know where everything was going to go? Correct. Yes, sir. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Wow. That is so cool. Um, and so I was going to ask you how that process went. Um, he just read through them and that was it. Banged them out the lines. It, I kid you not. Maybe two may the, at the most three times through on, on all of, all of, um, you know, what we had written. Love it, man. That is so exciting. Yeah. And now it's getting into all these film festivals. Where has it been received so far? So the first film festival we were accepted to was the uh, Franklin International Film Festival in Nashville, Tennessee. There's those two big festivals um, in, in Tennessee, I should say in Nashville, uh, the Nashville Film Festival and the Franklin International Film Festival. Um, it was recently selected to uh, Miami Film Festival and Montreal. And we just got word um, and announced it today that it was accepted to the Knoxville Film Festival, which will be held in September. So I'm actually attending that to go through the interview process and, and have the people that are screening the film where it will be up for more awards. 
um, which is, is great for, for this is a very diverse audience, I think, you know, which is really unique to be able to, to get, you know, people outside of the sport that know nothing about it whatsoever and to be able to tell a story that they can identify with through the sport of wrestling and, and through what it takes to, to be able to see and see a side of things that they've never seen before. And I think that what resonates with, with what we think will resonate with everybody, what it has previously to this is community, you know, and values and, and commitment of, of people that um, are, are really, they want to see it continue and want to see it succeed. Isn't that the most challenging thing? Like you want to do something that someone who knows nothing about wrestling can watch it and enjoy it, but you also don't want to offend the wrestling fan by making it too, too simple, you know, in terms of the wrestling context. I couldn't agree more because, you know, our sport is very unique. Um, there's, there's no doubt about it. And there's only a small group of people, you know, that, that, you know, want to participate in the sport. Very, very thankful that, that, that women's wrestling is growing so significantly across the country and more programs are being added. Um, but, you know, you had to keep, from my perspective, the authenticity of the sport um, involved. You know, one of the things that I vacillated on was the weight cutting, you know, and having to make weight. And a lot of people outside the sport don't understand why that's so significant. Mm -hmm. uh, but it is unique to, to wrestling and other sports like MMA and boxing. But keeping the authenticity, um, you know, front and center, um, because of the impact, because of the forging that the sport does uh, for, for its participants, I, th I thought was really uh, vitally important. Oh, absolutely. It's like it's the it's the truth of the story. And obviously one of the things that makes yeah. wrestling so unique for better or for worse. Um, yeah. And so people are probably when they meet you who don't know about wrestling, they're probably thinking, gosh, this guy is like he's, he's a maniac. He's inv investing all this time <laughs> in his film but he's yeah. a successful businessman. And I want to hit on that a little bit. So talk yeah. me through, um, through your journey a little bit. So you go to Perry, obviously, um, state champ, two times state champ. Yes, sir. Two times. And then you get to OU. Tell me about your, your early years at OU. Well, I originally went to the air force Academy, uh, my first year of college. Um, and, you know, had some some early success and it really, you know, I had an appetite, you know, given the fact that, you know, you had the likes of Jack Van Beber and Dan Hodge um, and then, you know, other teammates of mine and predecessors to the sport that had gone on and had success at, at the collegiate level, whether it be in junior college. My father was a, a junior college national champion and went on to wrestle at Michigan State. Um, we've had several, um, you know, All-Americans and national champions at the um, NAIA level when that was still part of the, the designation. And then of course the D3, D2 mm -hmm. and, and D1. Um, and so you know, one of the things that I wrestled with outside of the sport was injuries. Um, I got to the University of Oklahoma, very thankful that, you know, Coach Abel, Coach Stan Abel and Jerry Stanley gave me an opportunity um, to, to, you know, participate and be a student athlete there. Um, I was an NCAA qualifier and big eight place winner, um, in 1989. Um, and, you know, honestly, I didn't adapt well, uh, to the division one level. It was, it was really hard. My first match was against Townsend Saunders, um, oh. and ha actually had a, a really good match in the duel with him. Um, and then my, my next match was Rich Bailey, uh, from, from Cal state. So, um, I got indoctrinated quickly and had, 
a, a decent year, but nothing that you know you're going to ride home about, of course. And so um, I think the thing that really plagued me a lot was you know the, the plague of injury. Uh, I've had a lot of surgeries since that period of time, um, and I would have liked to have been able to carry on the tradition of having you know being an All-American, national champion, and, and moving forward. But that wasn't you know really in the cards for me, uh, for better or for worse. But, but I, I did take all of those things that I had learned um, and I applied them as, as we were talking about to my professional career. And so um, it started, you know, staying involved in sport was really important to me. I, I got the opportunity to do um, Ironman um, and, and did triathlon for the last 14 years. Did you ever do um, Kona? Been I didn't qualify for Kona. As you can imagine that there's some, some very gifted, talented athletes and I hadn't been in the sport for a long time. So I think you need about, you know, a, a 10 hour or 10 and a half hour, you know, so finish you have to time qualify. qualify. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, wow. So it's that it's qualification. And, and I, I didn't realize how many people do Ironman races. Like they sell out yeah. that quickly, right? They sell out very quickly, usually in about the first, you know, 30 minutes to two hours uh, of an event, which is, which is crazy, right? You got to pay six, $700 to do an Ironman event, you know? And so, yeah. What is I, an Ironman? Ironman, 2.4 mile swim, 112 mile bike, and a 26.2 mile run. And how many of those have you done? I've done one complete Ironman in 2010 and several half Ironmans, Olympics, and um, um, the, the shortest distance races as well. So did you, did you do this right after college or after you'd have been in business a while and we're looking for, looking for something to get the juices going? I've been in business uh, for a little while and in what's the, the, a lot of people don't really know about it. It's the medical device industry, oh, yeah. um, especially on the trauma side, we spend countless hours in the operating room and um, with trauma patients who have broken just about every bone in their body. And uh, you work with orthopedic surgeons to, to, to put them back together. So it was a, a real puzzle, but required what I would say is what I've learned, you know, to describe my personal life and professional life is the four A's of personal success. You know, it really takes availability, affability, accountability, and attention to detail. And then I, I found myself applying those in the sport of wrestling and certainly in my professional life in order for, to, for me to create, you know, success. And so you, you um, just looking at your LinkedIn, looks like you have a background in sales. Is that right? That's correct. Yes, so you sir. just, did you start at the entry level and just hammered your way up? I did. I did. So after my, uh, after my collegiate career, I had, you know, several orthopedic surgeons that had become friends of mine and they introduced me to a company and um, they told me I needed to get a little bit of experience. And so and I was never afraid of challenge, which I think the sport of wrestling helps us all develop, you know, not only the desire, but you know, you put a goal ahead of you and, and you're not going to be denied. And that's one great attribute, I think, about the sport. Well, I said, OK, I'm, I'm willing to pick up and move. And so I moved to Dallas, Texas from Oklahoma. And I spent a couple of years, uh, you know, gaining some experience and some achievements. And I came back and said, OK, well, here's, you know, my resume. But the fact of the matter is that when I start with you, it's kind of like a wedding, right? I've, I've done all the work. The wedding takes place. But I got to continue with the marriage. And so I'm willing to continue moving forward. So they moved me to Oklahoma and that sparked the last, you know, 27 years of my professional career in the medical device industry. And it's entailed, 
seven different moves overall. And most recently, I'm, I'm, I moved to uh, Miami, Florida uh, to take a role with my company here. When did you move from being individual contributor to like a manager? Like how long had you been in the field for the first time? I was asked after five years and I actually said, no, I wanted to gain more experience and, and, and really from a leadership perspective, have credibility. And mm-hmm. so I decided at, at the 12 year mark when our, our you know, first child was born that I would start to move into um, a leadership role. It was a little bit more in my industry. It's, it's a 24-7, 365 on call requirement. And so yeah. that gave me a little bit more flexibility you know, to be present with my family. But, it but was for those about, 12 years, you were just hammering it, huh? Just, just out there on the, on the pavement, grinding it out. There were, there was a time when, you know, my wife and I never drove in the same vehicle when we were dating anywhere because inevitably I was always going to be called in. And so we, uh, we never drove in the same car. It required that I was out for 96 hours at a time. Sometimes and never came home, man. And I got to imagine not many people are as dedicated as that in sales. So you did really well and have moved up, um, and then, you know, tell me about, tell me about the challenges of becoming like, like a C-level guy, like a president where you're not even in the, in the trenches with the daily, the daily wins and losses of the sales anymore. You're dealing with so many other distractions, yeah. like, and for folks who don't know, like, what is like, like one of the highest levels you achieved in business, like CEO president type thing. And what was that experience like? My, my, my official title with my company is chief commercial officer. So I'm responsible okay. for all of the internal and external sales organization. Um, I, I think the transition goes from, like you, you mentioned, you know, being an individual individual contributor to a leader. And a leader requires the ability to influence, um, and, but also put the needs of the organization first. So I was able to transition a lot of that from my wrestling career, right? Being on the mat, doing my individual contribution to helping the team win but then also helping push my teammates to achieve more than they thought possible in the same way that they were pushing me to do the same thing. And so I, I think I, I transitioned pretty naturally to that, you know, being a, a team captain um, throughout my, my, my time on the map um, and then, you know, going into organizations and helping people understand, you know, what they're capable of, I think one of the other parts is, is, is focus is so important in everything that we do. Mm. And you, you've got to really be disciplined to do the things necessary in order to create the success. Because at the end of the day in sales, as you know, the numbers don't lie, you know, and I think Bill Parcells said at one time, our record is who we are. <laughs> and so that's, that was one thing that I think was key in, in, in being able to, to, you know, give back. Um, and that's, it, it's really the same from my perspective about gratitude, giving to my team who I know I've lived the life that they've lived and I know what they're doing on a daily basis. And I know the sacrifices they make. And so if I can help them from the corporate level, be able to attain those goals and make it a little bit easier for them, then that's what my ultimate role is. Do you miss the, uh, the eat what you kill living out there on the oh, road? Man. <laughs> do you? Absolutely. I do. Oh, I I, I, as crazy as it sounds, I missed the call. Yeah. I, I missed the call. And, um, you know, there's, there's, there's nothing like getting a call at two o'clock in the morning on Christmas day. And, you know, somebody saying, Hey, you know what? 
you know how I like to operate. Just, just bring me what I need, what I even what I'm even thinking about. And, you know, we got, let's make sure we take care of this patient. So uh, that's, that's been something that I, I still enjoy. And I, I tell everyone I meet, you know, if you don't have a clear path of what you want to do in life, you know, sales could be the way, um, especially, you know, I'm in the business to business software sales game and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and you're obviously a med device, but there's so many avenues for it, but it really just rewards the values that wrestling has. So I love people who are in software sales or, or certainly med device sales. I have a lot of friends at Stryker, um, yeah. And a, f- a mentor, I guess I would say, Paul Glenn is a is a vice president at Stryker based here in Chicago. A lot of Iowa yeah. Hawkeyes are yeah. hitting the pavement for those guys. And it's like, I, I don't think people realize that med device sales reps, they're literally in the operating room with the doctor. And yes. that's where the relationship's built, which is just mind boggling to me because that's just that yeah, you wouldn't know that as a patient that the sales rep is right. going to be in the room. You know, tell me about right. once you became a leader. And you seem like a very meticulous man. Like, what was your like morning routine? And like, what are some of the habits you've done consistently over 10, 15 years in leadership and business? I, I, I would tell you that I think one of the most important aspects is organization. You know, setting clear and defined goals. I, I always look at it as the requirement of, of my leadership skill is to be able to, to cast a vision of the future but then also give people a line of sight of how to get there. You know, and I think that's what I was able to do, you know, outside my professional career with this film mm-hmm. is, is have people that knew nothing about the sport be able to identify with a certain aspect of it, but believe in the vision of what we needed to accomplish and how the film could tell this specific story. And so, as I say, to reiterate, Casting the vision and then showing people how to get there. I utilize, utilize an example a lot of times when, when our, our kids were really young, we would take them to do activities. My wife and I would, we would go and we would, you know, take them bowling, right? And I would say, okay, the objective is for the ball to go straight and hit pins, you know, that way they can have fun, not get frustrated. In order for us to do that, we had to put the bumpers up, mm-hmm. right? So that ball would go straight and hit pins. And so it's, it's, it's a lot from my perspective in the same way as, as helping them, you know, know what can be accomplished, what time frame it needs to be accomplished in, what resources that you receive in order to, to, to do it, and then be able to execute with excellence. And are you someone who are, is on the road a lot now in your uh, leadership capacity? Like every week, are you on the road? pretty much at least twice a month. Twice a month. Um, so we do a lot of educational events, but there's a lot of, um, you know, different meetings that have to take place, whether it's industry events or specific meetings, you know, um, at hospitals and offices across the globe. And so one of the, and the reason I asked was, you know, you mentioned earlier the Ironmans and I, I love hearing about routines and tactics. So yeah, are you someone who's like getting up early and working out at the hotel? I mean, how are you staying in shape um, later in your career? And like, especially when you were training for some of those Ironmans. The, the, the key certainly is setting up a structure and a schedule and, you know, being disciplined to get up early. Um, I think as wrestlers, we, we do that a lot. You know, when we get up on early morning runs or, you know, we go in and our, our cutting weight, and managing our weight in the evening times, riding the bike, didn't matter what time it was, you know, you were just going to do it because you loved it. You wanted it to be part of it. You knew it was going to make a difference. And so 
you know, many times when I'm on the road, um, my hotel, I've, I've got a gym there and I can either do whatever cardio. Um, it, it's great if you can, you know, find a pool to be able to swim and stuff, but most of them have bikes and I try to do my weight training during the, during the week, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and then, you know, riding, um, and, and swimming, you know, really on Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday. And I, I just want to round out the Ironman section with this. Yeah. How brutal was the the full length one you did? Was it like seems some of the darkest darks you ever been in, and then highest highs? I and mean, what was it like? You know, I I didn't experience that. I'm, I'm thankful and grateful. I, even though I'll tell you, the preparatory work up to that point was the hardest part. And so um, in October of 2009, um, I had an injury two days before a half Ironman that was part of my preparatory work for the following November when I knew that, you know, would be my first full distance Ironman. You were that so, far out, 13 months out? I was prepping? that far out. Absolutely. Wow. Because I, I, you know, it takes a lot of, of time and, and mileage in order to, to have your body build up to, um, you know, those distances. And so I ended up having to have a third procedure on my spine in January. Um, and so as, as, a, as a normal wrestler would, well, you know, I spoke to my surgeon on that Friday when I knew I had the injury and I told him that I had a race that I'd already prepared for and I wasn't, you know, wasn't going to not do it. You know, I just want to make sure I'm not going to hurt myself further. And he said, no. And so, um, long story short, I had surgery January 10th of 2010 and I was not able to lift, um, more than a half a jug of milk until May. Um, and so I didn't even really get to start training until I was released in essence, June 1st to start back training again. And, and the race was in November? November. It was. Wow. So, oh my so Lord. That was uh, a little bit of a rough. So the, the, the challenging part was trying to, to, you know, get back into a strong assemblance of shape, um, in order to be able to do that. But the race that day was, was much like, you know, um, I would equate it to, you know, wrestling in the state finals, um, where you, you know, all the prep work has gone in and, and that's your day to shine. And so it, it took me 12 hours, uh, to do Ironman. And I remember one of the, the, the ultimate things, uh, was that I wanted to hear Mike Riley say, Chance Leonard, you are an Ironman. And I, I don't know how it happened. Um, from the standpoint of there was nobody around me when I came through this long finishing shoot that you see, you know, on most of these events. And I was happened to just be by myself. And, you know, he obviously he, he does a great job of calling people's names out, which is incredibly invigorating. And, um, you know, to cross the finish line, hearing that was something that was um, a great day. And were you a runner before this? Or is this nothing like more than nothing more than you know what we did training for for wrestling and so what, i'd never swam I, I i had never swam and so i had to, to teach myself and go to some master's classes for swimming but i didn't start swimming until i was you know 41 years old i was gonna ask you so did you hire a trainer who had done this no, before no I, wow. I, I did it all myself just research it all research own? absolutely yeah so at the peak of it what was like your running workload were you doing a marathon a day type thing or? No, I, I would say, you know, the, the longest pre-race run was 20 miles um, mm -hmm. associated with, you know, a several hundred mile bike rides. And, um, 
you know, a few thousand meters in the pool um, would, would, you know, would get to the point. And then most recreational athletes in a sense like me, you, you have a taper period, you know, a week and a half, two weeks before. Uh, but so those were the, the longest at the time. So I'd never run a marathon previous to that. Oh my Lord. That's crazy. So <laughs> I did a, there was a period in my life about three years ago where I, I did my first marathon and, and then did a, did a, a 30 mile race, a Spartan race. And so I, I, oh, love. I was excited about that. And I was really loving that whole, like that ultra endurance community. Yeah. Um, the thing is just the amount of time it takes to get ready to run. I mean, and then you factor on that you're doing the swimming and the biking. I just can't imagine how people have the time for train for that. Cause that's at least four to six hours every Saturday. Um, oh yeah. At least, you know, what I, I remember there were times, especially I lived in Arizona, um, at that time. And, um, we would get up at three o'clock in the morning and ride until 9.00 AM and take six hours, you know, to do that training day's training ride, because it was just too hot. The other yeah. You, time, so. you couldn't, you said you start training in June. So, you know, July, August, September in Arizona. Yeah. Wow. That is hot. That's brutal. Well, yeah. Chance, this has been a lot of fun, and I appreciate you coming on here. I am excited for people to go watch the film, The Price of Legacy. Um, I appreciate the preview you shared. I guess I should say, how can people watch it, or is it not available yet to the general public? Yeah, I actually released um, June 15th, and okay. so it's on all of the major platforms on video on demand. So you can get it on Apple iTunes. You can get it on Google Play, you can get it on YouTube movies. Uh, we're still trying to work out um, the agreement with Amazon Prime. We were originally supposed to be on Amazon Prime um, and they kind of moved the goalposts on us, um, so to speak. So we're trying to, to get that up. But you know, what I would ask is that, you know, we are at a, a you know, uncharted territory time from my perspective with marketing of the sport of wrestling. And so, I think that you know people can reach us on all of our social media pages, whether it be on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. Um, go like the pages, share it with your friends. We're, we have a, a campaign that, you know, speaking of getting up early, I always get up every morning early and I do all the advertising myself and, and put together all of the social media posts and stuff. Uh, but the more people that we could actually have watched the film, the higher that it goes on all of these video on demand platforms. And so recently we were number two on all of the documentaries on iTunes and Google play, which is what? staggering for our sport. You know, that's insane. We've got a very diverse group of people that, you know, can watch the film and get access to it. And so we kind of have to create a, a real organic and viral response. And that requires as many people that are fans of the sport watch the film, share it with their friends. Um, we've even got, you know, uh, Trace Atkins has is, is been a huge proponent for us and he's sharing it. Um, I'm working with a couple other uh, voices within Hollywood to hopefully get a um, couple very large name shout out videos. Um, but you can find us, uh, as I say, on all the social media pages and all the video on demand platforms. I love it. If you're a wrestling fan and you are, if you're listening to this, please watch this film. It's like, this is just done because you love wrestling and you love Perry and you want to share all yeah. these, these messages. So it's an awesome thing. And I'm just glad that we finally get to connect. Um, Chance, thanks again for coming yeah. on the show. Appreciate it. Ryan, thanks so much. Enjoyed my time with you very much. And that's the end of this episode of Wrestling Changed My Life. 
Thank you so much for tuning in. To watch the full video interview, go to YouTube Wrestling Changed My Life. And that's it. We'll see you next time.